have a physical description, a physical characteristic that helps people identify us. When you're traveling nowadays and you're at the airport, it's not just enough uh, to have your ticket and so forth with you, and not even enough to have the old driver's license, but now there's a, a new driver's license that you have to have that makes it possible for you to fly and accompanies your passport if you're leaving and plan to return uh, to the country. Physical descriptions. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we should also have a spiritual description that separates us apart from the rest of the world. Certain characteristics, certain things that we do and say and the way that we think and our philosophical makeup that sets us apart from the rest of the world. Not because we're trying to be good enough uh, to earn our way into heaven or, uh, or avoiding the, the bad things to keep ourselves out of, out of the other place. But we are producing the fruits of the Spirit after our own kind, the Lord. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, there ought to be some distinguishing characteristics. And we're going to look at those in this first part of 1 Peter. The Apostle Peter was given the keys to, the, to unlocking the kingdom of God, which he did. He preached a powerful message in Acts chapter 2 to the Jewish audience, primarily a Jewish audience, and I mean he really let them have it. And that day, like 3,000 households of people were baptized. It was an incredible response. And there's no way physically that Peter could have done all those baptisms. And so I, in my mind, I just picture it like a concert of baptizing. I mean, neighbors baptizing neighbor and friend baptizing friend and parent baptizing child and, and taking turns baptizing each other. And so I bet it was a beautiful response to that persuasive and powerful message in Acts chapter 2, and the New Testament church was born. You skip over eight chapters to Acts chapter 10. The Apostle Paul, he's going to open the keys uh, to the kingdom. Uh, he's going to use the keys to the kingdom of God to open it to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And there he is in Acts chapter 10. He's on the rooftop. He's waiting for his meal to be prepared. He's having his time of prayer, and he's, he's caught up in a, in a trance, if you will, and God gets his attention and gives him a supernatural vision. Something like a sheet containing so-called unclean animals of the Old Testament is lowered down out of heaven right in front of him. And Peter very proudly and boastfully says, oh no, Lord, nothing unclean has ever entered my lips. And God gets his attention and says to him, Peter, don't call anything clean, unclean that I've made clean by my own authority. She goes back up to heaven, and it's repeated two more times. And then Peter is instructed to go downstairs and wait. And sure enough, an angel comes. He is, he is told to go to the, to the house of Cornelius and to preach the same gospel, the exact same gospel to the Gentiles that had been preached to the Jewish people. Everyone on the face of the planet could get in on God's plan of salvation directly through nothing other than the blood of Jesus Christ. No other, no other hoops to jump through, no other uh, things you had to know or be able to recite. You didn't have to become this religion in order to get into this religion kind of thing. You could just go straight as a Gentile into being a follower of Jesus. It was a radical concept. And now it was time for Peter to send a letter of encouragement to those who were outcast because of their obedience to Jesus and their conversion from paganism to Christianity. Gentile Christians often struggled with their identity. They weren't always accepted by their new Jewish Christ-following friends, and they were rejected by their long-standing pagan friends and family members. 
I've been fortunate enough to be on the mission field and you see people come to Christ and they're not coming out of a, uh, an atheistic, faithless um, background. They're coming out of a very strong, committed belief system in another God and they have to lay that aside in order to embrace Jesus. Jesus will only have you if you'll only have him. <laughs> And, and that is a lot for somebody to denounce uh, their religion or their faith, to walk away, in many cases, from their family. It's a radical, a very radical uh, decision and commitment to make. But it can be a very lonely place. I don't have a story that compares anything close to somebody that's gone to that kind of a radical change in life. But you've heard me say before that I did not become a Christian until March of my senior year in high school, first member of my household to start attending church and to become a, a, a Christian and to be baptized into Christ. And, and it was kind of a, a radical concept. And I remember when you come along at that late stage of the game and you walk into a youth group, they can be friendly, but you feel like an outsider, an outcast. You don't know any of the names. You don't know who they're talking about or the things that they... Nine months into it, I decided to go off to Bible college because I was answering God's call uh, that I felt that God was calling me into full-time ministry. So I went off to prepare for that nine months into it. There's a lot of terminology that a new Christian just doesn't understand. I remember the RA coming down the hallway with a clipboard, and he was scheduling people to give devos, he called them. I thought devo was a rock group that wore flower pots on their heads, <laughs> you know. I had to ask someone, what's a devo? Devotions. What's devotions? You know, it's kind of like a sermon, but not as full-blown. In the evening, in the hallway, <laughs> in your dorm clothes. Oh, okay, I can do that. Devos. I went to Cincinnati Bible College in January of 1988, midway through the year. About 1,000 students at the time uh, were part of Cincinnati, uh, what is now was Cincinnati Christian University. And... Um, but only nine students transferred mid-year. So you're kind of already a little bit behind. And because it was going into the spring semester, everybody was talking about the North American. You go into the North American? You hear the North Americans in Louisville this year. Uh, who's speaking at the North American this year? I'm like, what's the North American? <laughs> oh, North American Christian Convention. You kind of feel like an outsider. And if you were a Gentile, in the time period in which Peter is sending this letter, everything about Christianity, even though it is first century and it is new, you automatically start out feeling like an, an outsider. And then you get dispersed, spread out over all of these towns that are listed there in the first couple of verses there uh, of this letter. And, and you find yourselves trying to fit in, and you're surrounded by all of the paganism in the world around you, and there's this temptation to backslide. There are pros and cons to being a first century Christian. One of the pros was that you or someone that you knew might have actually seen Jesus in person and possibly heard him preach. Can you imagine what that would be like? The stories are, are still new. They're still first century. And, and to hear people talking about Jesus, yeah, my family heard him speak once in this certain town, and they were there when he healed this person, and it was awesome. And the stories would have been so exciting to hear. But as Christianity went on, and as we get closer to the end of that first century, and grandma and grandpa have passed away, and mom and dad aren't doing as well, and they're getting up in years, and before long, the stories were becoming more handed down. It's always kind of sad when the last living person from an event or history passes away, isn't it? 
Because once they're gone, then there's no one to hear those first eyewitness accounts and testimonies. I think about what it would have been like uh, to have the last living um, person who was alive during the Civil War pass away. What was it like when the last living person, the last living survivor from the ship, the Titanic, passed away as an elderly person who had been a young child on that ship that could tell you what they vaguely remember about it and, and, and what their parents had to say about it? Now you and I are trying to cling to all of these World War II veterans, what few there are that still exist. We want to we hear from them and to hear their stories and to interview them. And you see a lot of that. And then there's this push to get them to uh, Washington, D.C., to see the monument and so forth, and to have one of those heroes uh, welcomes when they come back. Well, the, the first century Christians... While they may have had first century experience with Jesus on the earth, they also had the disadvantage of not having a 2,000-year-old church to cling to like you and I have. They didn't have a handy copy of the New Testament. In fact, that's what this is, this letter that's coming to them, part of the New Testament. Or an understanding of the duration of Jesus' time in heaven before coming again and how long it would be. Remember, the Bible says that a day to the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years to the Lord is as a day. That's not really literal because God has no concept of time. He's infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. How could he have a concept of time? But if it was literal, if a day really was as a thousand years and a thousand years really was as a day, then Jesus has been back in heaven for about two days. (laughs) And he says, behold, I come quickly. And when I look at my watch or my calendar, and I think he's been gone for 2,000 years, is he really coming back? And the first century Christians struggled as well. In fact, in the, in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the apostle Paul, when he is writing to them, he addresses that whole issue of what about those who were born again into Christ but who physically died before Jesus returned? Are they going to miss the second coming? That was a legitimate concern. And Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep or who have passed away. For when the Lord comes back, he's bringing with him those who have passed away, those who have fallen asleep in him. And then the, the, their bodies will rise first and we who are alive will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And he said, therefore, encourage one another with those very encouraging words. The typical letter of Peter's day would start with a greeting, a prayer, and thanksgiving. You know, kind of that small talk that you have. Hope you're doing well. Hope this letter finds you, you know, prosperous and everything's going ta-da, ta-da, you know, kind of fill in the blanks. But he adds the word grace to the typical greeting, peace, peace unto you. Grace, he says, and peace to you. Grace and peace. Another uniqueness is that the thanksgiving portion includes a passionate praise to God for all the heavenly blessings that he has stored up for those who are his. The reality of of, of believing in, in a literal heaven and knowing that it exists and knowing that you're going to be there someday and being grateful and thankful to God that he has made it possible for you to be assured that you can go there because of Jesus' blood and righteousness. First Peter will remind the readers that they are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. It's in, it is a contrast to the other truth that they were all too familiar with in this world They were strangers, and they were scattered. They had an identity crisis. They'd walked away from paganism, and therefore they didn't fit in anymore. 
They struggled to be accepted by their Jewish friends, and now they were exiled all over the place. And Peter's going to remind them, this isn't the first time that God's people have been exiled. This isn't the first time that God's people have been scattered. This isn't the first people, time that God's people have kind of wandered and, and, and waited in great anticipation of a promised land, so to speak. For 40 years, they, they did that. Tiny congregations were spread all over modern Turkey amidst pagan worship, and they desperately needed the encouragement from Peter. How about you? Do you need encouragement today? Are you screen-weary from Zoom meetings and e-learning? Are you a little bit overwhelmed by news pop-up alerts and the ongoing challenge of trying to discern how much of it's hype and how much of it is fact? How can you be responsible and safe and still live and still enjoy your freedoms without being so scared to death that you, that you live in a shell? And where's the balance and how do you know? Do you need some encouragement? Do you need hope? Do you need reminded that you're not alone, that you're part of something bigger, that you're part of the family of God, and that you have a, a rich future ahead of you? Before ever they existed, the Father knew and loved them and made them His. They are the elect, First Peter calls them. Now, the reason he uses that word elect is because God elected them to be saved. He chose them. He made the first step. He gave the invitation. I like to refer to our response when we become born-again Christians as to our RSVP to the invitation to the party. You can't RSVP to a party you've not been invited to. <laughs> and God is full of first steps. You know, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Not because he felt sorry for us or because we begged him enough or because we got good enough. He made the first step. And the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would, what? Come to repentance. God has not elected anyone to be lost for eternity. He has not chosen some people to be lost and created them to spend eternity in hell. That doesn't match anything else about the truths of God that we find in Scripture. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And when Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood, when he said, it is finished, his blood was shed for every single person who has ever walked this planet or ever will walk this planet. Everyone is on the invitation list. But not everyone will be saved, but that decision is theirs to make in how they respond the prophets of long ago were aware that they were writing for someone else so that the gospel only needed to be announced when the time came. Isn't that pretty awesome? There is still great value and merit for you and me to, to be in the Old Testament and to study it because it's all about Jesus. From Genesis through Revelation, it's all about Jesus, the person of Jesus, that he was coming and that he came and that he returned to heaven and that he's coming again. That's the Bible story. And the, the prophets had kind of already done the work and Peter only needed to be the announcer. 
And he includes no less than 25 quotes from the Old Testament. So as we make our way through 1 Peter, we're going to see quite a bit of the Old Testament in it. The one who requires us to be holy happens to be the same one who makes us holy, Jesus. Isn't that awesome? The very one who says you must be holy is the very one who can make us holy and set apart and sanctioned. I am a holy person. Now, if if you heard me say that out of context, you'd think, well, boy, he's kind of arrogant, isn't he? You hear him boasting about how holy he is? Oh, I am. I'm very holy. But it's not because of anything that I've done or not done. It's because of the blood of Jesus Christ that has made me holy. And I can confidently, if somebody says to me, if you died today, do you know where you would spend eternity? I can say in heaven. They might say to me, well, aren't you sure of yourself? Oh, the only thing I'm sure about myself is that I'm a sinner (laughs) saved by grace. I'm a sinner, but Jesus is perfect. And I'm confident in that. I'm confident that there is no sin that I've ever committed or ever thought that is so big that the blood of Jesus can't wash it clean and that it hasn't washed it. My trust is in him. When I say I know I'm going to heaven when I die, it's not because of anything that I am. It's because of who he is. Do you know him? Because if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you're born again into him, if your name's on the Lamb's book of life, you have no reason to fear. And those are encouraging words for all of us to hear. The one who requires us to be holy happens to be the same one who makes us holy, Jesus. All right, three things that we're going to get from verses 13 through 16. First of all, if you want to be a holy person, separate, belonging to the Lord, reserved for Him, then we need to do these three things. One, focus your attention on Jesus. If you're taking notes and you write, focus your attention on Jesus, you might circle the word focus because it's heavily uh, featured in verse 13. Here's what it says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare for action. Set your hope Fully on the grace of Jesus. Fully. Not just sort of. Not just like, you know, I do sometimes when I've got the the television on in the background while I'm doing some household chores and I'm kind of overhearing it and I'm in and out of the room kind of thing. But we are to set our focus on Jesus. How focused are you on Jesus? Do, do you have a compartmentalized faith where it's reserved for Sunday morning only and you kind of check in and you check out and so forth? Uh, of your faith in Christ? Or are you focused on Him? Do you have a prayer life that is a, a pray without ceasing kind of prayer life in which you don't have to dial up God and get His attention when you want to talk to Him because He's already on the speakerphone of your, of your life? I mean, are you fully focused on Jesus? And it takes some preparation on our part. Peter says, preparing your minds like like girding up your, uh, you know, they would talk about girding up basically their robes whenever they were about to go into battle so that they could run quickly and unhindered and be prepared for action. We need to be prepared for action. The Christian life is not a spectator sport. Every one of us has been called into action, and it takes some mental preparation. I so often think about the spiritual preparation that it takes to be a Christ follower. If I want to be holy, I've got to 
prepare myself spiritually, but we have to prepare ourselves mentally as well. You have three parts, body, mind, and soul. We do a pretty good job at focusing on the body and the soul. We exercise, we, you know, discipline our body because we want to build up certain muscles, we want to lose a certain amount of weight, we want to be able to compete in a certain sport, and so we know pretty much how to evaluate our physical. And as Christians, I think spiritually, we, we know about our spiritual health, but even the mind plays a part in our obedience to God and our ability to be holy and set apart, and it takes some preparation. Do you prepare yourself mentally to worship? I mean, do, do you get a good night's sleep? Do you, do you set out your, uh, your things that you need for Sunday morning so that there's not stress and chaos as you're trying to get out the door uh, for church? Do you hide God's word in your heart? Are you prepared mentally? And then we're to be sober-minded. The best translation for that, I think, is sober-minded, as the English Standard Version has it. Because we need to be thinking of nothing but Christ and focused on Him in every decision that we make as we're trying to be holy. Because our holiness comes from Him. The one who requires us to be holy is the one who equips us to be holy. The mind that is girded up and redirected by Scripture will begin to think a new way. You can kind of control how you think. You can control your attitude because your thoughts control your attitude and your thoughts can be controlled by, by your mental preparedness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, if you're new in your faith or if you're considering becoming a follower of Christ, I mean, you need to know that you're going to continue to have the same temptations that you had before you became a Christian. You're going to continue to have the same impure thoughts or motives pop into, into your head from time to time. But you can be changed by this, this redemptive uh, blood of Christ can not only change you in the sense that you're, you were lost and now you're saved, but can also help to to redirect your thoughts, a new creation. seems like we're controlled either by external influences or internal ones. And there is so much noise in the world today, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot of noise. Uh, but who are you going to listen to? You know, listen to all the stuff on the outside? Or will you have your attention so focused on Jesus that when you need to discern what is right and wrong, it won't be based on popular opinion. It won't, be a base, it won't be based on the latest poll that you see on the news, what most Americans think or don't think. It's going to be based on the timeless, unchanging truths of the Word of God. Focus your attention on Jesus. We can do that several ways. One simple way is to memorize Scripture that's kind of an art that has kind of gone by the wayside. But there's something powerful that happens when we memorize Scripture. And I would say to you, if, if memorizing Scripture is not something that, that comes easy for you or that you're not able to do, at least get in the habit of maybe printing out the Scripture and having it in places where you will see it on a regular basis. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
If you want to know what's right and what's wrong, you go to the absolute truth of the Word of God, and then you'll, you'll know the difference between right and wrong. Those that are trained to spot counterfeit money don't study all the different kinds of counterfeit money that's out there in the world. What they do is they focus on the original and the authentic. And they get so familiar to, with, with what is real and what is authentic that when something that doesn't match up to that comes along, they spot it quickly. And Christians, I think we've gotten so far away from the Word of God today, and we have been listening to all of the external forces on us, that when something that's wrong comes along, now suddenly we're scratching our heads and going, well, maybe it's not as bad as I thought it was. How could all these people be wrong? You need to be holy in the sense that you think differently if the world is thinking contrary to the Word of God. Psalm 1 verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Are you meditating on God's law? Are you meditating on God's truths? And here's another one, quiet time. <laughs> Meditate and memorize scripture, but also have quiet time with the Lord. I, I'm, I probably struggle with this more than I do. I think any, anything else... It's hard for me to turn off the radio even when I'm driving in the car. It's hard for me to, to sit in the silence. It's hard for me to just listen to the Lord. That's one of the reasons I think just getting out in nature can be so powerful. Alone time, solitude time with the Lord. Matthew 6, 6 says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray in secret. Spend some quiet time with the Lord. James 4, 8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. We drift so easily. I love fishing. And it's interesting to me sometimes when I go fishing in a large lake, and I cast out the bobber, and I'm so, oh, sometimes I can be so excited about the perfect cast. I mean, it just, oh, I get so, nobody's around to see it. I'm like, oh, I just am so excited. I took a picture last time I went fishing of my bobber out in the middle of the lake. I didn't take a picture of anything else, so you have no reference to know how good of a cast it was. But trust me, it was good. But I looked out a few minutes later, and it was not where I cast it because it had drifted. It had drifted away from where it was cast. And we're drifters at times, but the Lord never moves. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not sleep, and he does not get sleepy. <laughs> Book of Psalms tells us, Psalm 139, you do not slumber, nor do you sleep. <laughs> he doesn't sleep, and he never gets tired. He's, he, you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you want to pray. Don't worry, you're not going to disturb him. He's up. <laughs> God is always on, always awake. And craving that time with us. And if we'll draw near to him, then we'll find out he's near us. I would say, too, make sure that you're in a, a small, and I emphasize small, accountability group. I mean, yeah, be in a, a larger growth group-sized kind of group. Continue to worship in corporate worship like, like, like we do here on Sunday mornings. But you need a, a group, maybe just one other person, or maybe, maybe four or five of you that you meet with on a regular basis who will be a safe place for you and let you just be you. 
a place where you can say, I'm really struggling. I'm, you know, I, I need you guys to pray for me because this week this certain temptation has been revisiting me over and over and over again. I'm feeling kind of weak. Will you pray for me? I need help. I need, would you pray for my marriage? Would you pray for my parenting? Would you pray for this, this issue that I'm having at work? Would you pray for... We, you need a group of guys or a group of ladies, somebody the same gender as you, that you can meet with, and they'll help hold you accountable and call you out when you need called out, that you trust. It's not going to throw you under the bus. You need an accountability group. And we do need the larger gatherings, the Christian community. Hebrews 11.25 says to not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Secondly, know that you belong to Jesus. 1 Peter 1.14 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The Bible-based redirected mind will be committed to God's priorities Being holy means separated from the world. And so much of it, I feel like, is knowing whose you are. You were bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ. And when you repent, when you give your life to Jesus, you say, I no longer belong to me, I belong to him. I've often said, I wish we had paperwork for our souls like we do for our cars and our homes. If you have title work to your car and you sign the title work over to someone else, that that someone else now owns your car. If you find a spare key you didn't know you have a couple of months later, you cannot go and get in that car because it's no longer your car. You might say, yeah, but it used to be mine. Yeah, it used to. Not anymore. And this life of mine, when I give myself to Jesus Christ, I no longer belong to me. I belong to him. And the life I live, he lives through me. He calls the shots. I like that Peter talks about the way we lived before becoming Christ followers as our former ignorance. You know, the word ignorance is not a bad word. I used to think ignorant was synonymous with stupid, but it's not. It doesn't mean you're just not a smart person. It just means you don't have the information yet. You're ignorant of the information until you get it. But once you get it, you got it. And Peter's reminding them, hey, you used to be controlled by certain temptations back when you were ignorant of such things, but now you know. Now you know what pleases Jesus and what does not. Revelation 5.9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jew and Gentile alike purchased ransom. There's a wonderful mission in Indianapolis that was founded by a lady who was appalled over human trafficking and how, uh, how rampant it was even in our beloved city and how blind we can be to it. And she said, something has to be done. And she based the name of her mission on this verse I just read for you, Revelation 5.9. Ransomed is the word the ESV uses, but purchased. And that's what she called purchased. Purchased. Nobody has a right to abuse you because you've been purchased. You don't even belong to you. It's not your, yours to give the right to abuse you in any way because you've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And Peter, is remind, Peter reminds them here in this text, here in 1 Peter, uh, that they are not to walk in that former ignorance not to be conformed by their former passions, but they are 
to remember whose they are. They belong to Jesus. Finally, model your behavior after Jesus. 1 Peter 5, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God calls us to be different because he is different. Jesus is the perfect servant leader. Not only is the one who calls us to be holy the one who makes us holy, but he is also the great demonstrator. He gives us the example. Jesus is not like a general that says, there it is, go do it. Instead, he says, come follow me. Watch what I do, do what I do, follow me. And that's why a lot of times for, when we talk about Christians, we call them Christ followers because we're following Jesus. There's nothing he asks us to do that he himself was not doing. You know, he spent time alone in prayer. He and the Father are one. <laughs> he and the Father are one, and yet he saw the need to spend time alone in prayer, and he was oftentimes needing to get alone by himself and be alone with the Father and to pray. And if he needed it, so do we. He didn't just say, go serve others. Instead, he got down on his knees with a wash basin and a towel, and he washed the feet of his disciples. And then he told them, if I am willing to serve you, then you ought to be able and capable of serving one another. If the master can serve the servant, then the servants can serve each other. And it's a great object lesson that he gave, because everything he calls us to do, he did himself. And when he tells us, take up your cross and follow me, He's already demonstrated that when he took up the cross, the cross and died on it for you and me. And so when he says, take up your crosses, follow, give up and sacrifice your life daily, even in persecution, even in disbursement, even when we aren't able to meet together and all these kind of things are, are, are discouraging us, we can still be faithful to him because he was faithful. You be holy, he says, for I am holy. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for sending him to the earth. Lord, for demonstrating uh, to us what, what true holiness looks like. And God, it's not uh, an arduous task for us, uh, Lord, to, to try to be holy. It is, our, it is our privilege because being separate from this world just as a greater demonstration, Lord, that we, we belong to you. Thank you for choosing us. Thank you for wanting us. Thank you for making it possible for us to be called yours. Thank you for allowing us to call you Abba, Father, right alongside of your only son, Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to be your children. God, we praise you for that. And in the midst of a, of a year that's upside down, God, we take great comfort in you, that, Lord, you are right side up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.